All right. <clears throat> Should we uh, go ahead and uh, we'll go ahead and get started here. Uh, hopefully everybody grabbed the sheet on the way in with uh, the outline of the things we're going to try and talk about um, when we look at the book of Acts. Today we're going to try and do, at the very least, an introduction to the book of Acts um, so that we can have kind of a foundation ready to go. Um, as we talk about the rest of the book. And I would submit to you that the book of Acts is one of the most Lutheran out of all the books in the scripture. Um, you know, definitely, I'd say uh, Galatians and uh, Romans are up there as well. But the book of Acts is really great because it teaches us what the church looked like at the very, very beginning. And as we read about what the church looked like in the very, very beginning, hopefully we'll see lots of Lutherans um, there in the pages of Scripture. Because I think, as I read the book of Acts, I see the early church as Lutheran, just like we're Lutheran. Now, they wouldn't have used the word Lutheran because they're 1,500 years too early for that. But they're still Lutheran in their practice, in their theology, and... Um, in the way that the church is organized and works. And so that's kind of be kind of going to be the thing we focus the most on. Uh, before we get into the actual sheet, let's uh, bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you to bless your word, that we may hear it, study it, and learn it, and increase in faith and in trust in you. Help us to keep our eyes open to watch for the sermons of the book of Acts, that we might hear them and apply them to our own life. Help us keep our eyes open to pay attention to the way you use your word and sacrament to grow your church, and help us in the same way grow your church by trusting in word and sacrament even today. All these things we ask in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, to start with, we're going to talk about kind of the who, what, why, where, and when of the book of Acts. Who wrote it? Uh, why did they write it? Where uh, are the events taking place? And where was it written even? Uh, all these things are really helpful for us to put a, uh, together how this book came about. And so we're going to start there with number one uh, at the top of the page there. Uh, the letter A where it says, who? And so we're going to start by reading actually from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. St. Luke 1, 1 through 4. And if someone gets that ready and wants to read it, that would be great. Alright, so that's the introduction to the Gospel of Luke. <clears throat> Choking on a sunflower seed here. <clears throat> that's the introduction to the Gospel of St. Luke. Uh, and then let's compare that with the introduction then to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first book of the Bible, I dealt with all that Alright, in both of those places that we just read, we hear St. Luke introducing the book that he is writing. And so Luke writes both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. And in fact, it's really one work that's been divided into two books. And, and the reason for that isn't necessarily that Luke wanted it in two books, but just a practical um, a practical reason. In the ancient world, you primarily wrote your books down or your letters down 
on what's called papyrus. And what papyrus is, is in ancient Egypt, it's kind of like cattails, to be honest with you. Uh, it's this bush that grows next to the Nile River. And the ancient people would cut the bush down, and they would slice the stalks into nice thin sections, and they would lay them down like a grid on top of each other on a flat stone with another flat stone on top. And the, the reeds of the papyrus plant would stick together and dry in such a way that you had the very first ancient version of paper. And that, that's even where the word paper comes from, is papyrus, the plant they used for that. And to buy it, um, you know, you'd make a sheet that would be about like this square. To make a scroll, you took those sheets and you sewed them together. And then you rolled it up onto a scroll, or later on, they would stack them and sew them together on the end. But there's only so much that you can fit onto one scroll, and it's also expensive to get it longer than that. So the limiting factor in the, the division between the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts is probably more practical in the sense uh, we can fit the Gospel of Luke on this one papyrus scroll, and then we start with a new scroll to put the book of Acts on there. But it is one work, two parts, written by St. Luke. Now, what do you know about St. Luke? He is a doctor. He's a doctor, which means what? Yes, he's well, he's well educated, and as a result, he's going to write very, very, um, in a very, very educated, formal manner, okay? Um, and we're going to get there a little bit, talk about that. So he's very well educated. Anything else people know about Luke? That's, that's on there. Okay, does anybody, oh. I'm just going to say this one shows he he is not an apostle. He's not an apostle. Uh, he's not one of the twelve. He's a later convert. Um, but uh, he does work very closely with an apostle. In fact, he works very very closely with the apostle Paul. He. He's very good friends with Paul, and even as we get to a, a later point in the book of Acts, we'll see where Luke and Paul started hanging out, because Luke changes the way that he writes. For the first half of the book of Acts, St. Luke says, uh, Peter did that, Paul did that, James did that, and then all of a sudden he switches the way that he writes, and he says, we did this. And so that's the point, whether it's when he was converted or whether it's when he started working with St. Paul, that comes on later. So he's a second-generation Christian in that sense, converted by the apostles preaching and teaching. We're going to see a lot of that. Um, the accounts in the, in the book of Luke. What's that? So the accounts in the book of Luke, he was not a witness. He was not an eyewitness, but, yes, um, and he, he admits as much even in the introductions that we've just read, because what's he say? Insomuch as anyone has taken the time to put together an orderly account, that's what I'm trying to do. He's a historian in that sense. He is interviewing people and asking them what they saw. And not only is he asking people what they saw and using that to research what he writes, he's also, because of, of how he works, he works closely with St. Paul. And so you can almost think of the Gospel of Luke as the Gospel of St. Paul, because Luke and Paul go together so much. Okay? So this is... Paul's account. And what do we know about Paul then? Where did Paul get a lot of his information? Who showed up and talked to him? Jesus. 
Jesus said, you're going to be a Christian. And then he sent him into Damascus to talk to a pastor. And so he's getting this information through the church as well as from the Lord himself. Okay? Um, and so, yes, Paul and Luke go together. And there's other places in Scripture that teach us. So we have three of them listed here, right under the corner of the map. We have Colossians 4.14. Someone go look that up. We have 2 Timothy 4.11. And we have Philemon verse 24. Let's look those up and read those. Um, does somebody have Colossians? Yes, Demas. Yep, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as does Damas. Okay, and this is a letter by Paul to the people of Colossae. Okay, and he says, Luke is here with me, even to the point where Luke sends his greeting. All right, 2 Timothy 4, 11. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you. Free is very useful to me. So we see here, what's Paul say? Bring help. Bring help because all I've got is Luke here with me. Send Mark because all I've got is Luke. And it's not that Luke wasn't a good helper or anything like that, but uh, Paul wanted more help than just Luke could do. All right, Philemon. Um, Philemon verse 24. All right, this is as Paul is a prisoner, and he says, Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke are with him. Now, why would Luke be a useful person to always be with Paul? Yeah, Paul's always writing letters to the Christians in different places, and Luke, as we're going to see, is an excellent writer, an excellent writer. And so um, this is a, the way it oftentimes worked in the ancient world. You see this right underneath there in uh, subpoint uh, Roman numeral three. Most people in the ancient world could not write more than just a few little tiny words. And most people in the ancient world could not read. And so if you wanted to send a letter, you would hire what's called an amanuensis. Uh, and maybe we should make the vicar do this for our sermons and things. But the way it would work would be you would hire this guy and you would tell him what you wanted to say and he would write it down. Luke is the amanuensis for Paul in many of Paul's writings and in the Gospel of Luke and the, the book of Acts. So that's, that's the way ancient things were written down. And then two... The way you make copies in the ancient world, you didn't have a copy machine. Um, so the way you would make copies is, if I wrote down my book and I wanted to make 20 copies, I would hire 20 amanuensises. See, side, those people, the writer people. I'd hire them and I would stand in front of them and I would read the book while they wrote it down. So I'd say, but denying its power, Avoid such people. And all the people would write down what I was saying as I said it. And that was the way you made a photocopy in the ancient world. That's what Luke is. So Luke is friends with Paul and is with Paul in his ministry and is the writer of many of Paul's things. Um, and we even see this clearly in a couple places. Paul talks about how he doesn't see or write very well. Uh, boy, is it in um, 2 Corinthians, at the end of 2 Corinthians, where he says, uh, look, I'm writing this with my own hand. That's why the letters are so big. Okay? Uh, Paul's not as good a writer as Luke is. Luke does it for him. Luke is, as we talked about, a physician, which means he's an educated person and a well-read person. That's how... Um, you became a physician back in the ancient world. There was a um, very famous book that all physicians read. And the book was written uh, 
wrong name of the guy in my head. It's not Hero of Alexandria, but um, books or uh, physicians had all learned from this one book written by a guy who had worked in the Colosseum in Rome. And he had learned anatomy because it was illegal to look at bodies, especially dead bodies. Uh, it was illegal to cut them open uh, and see what all the organs were and how they worked. And so this guy worked at the Colosseum, and the um, gladiators would do the dissections for him, right? So they'd take a sword and they'd cut this guy's arm, and he would peek in there and look at it before he sewed it up. And he wrote this book on uh, being a physician. It's likely that Luke had read that book at this time. So he's read, uh, he's well educated, and he writes in a classical style. What I mean by that is a lot of the books, um, a lot of the Gospels, even three of the four Gospels, are kind of written in a um, home-style, country sort of dialect, right? So, for example, St. John, in his Gospel, he doesn't say... Um, Jesus said to the disciples, but instead he says, then Jesus says to the disciples, and he uses that kind of weird way of saying, instead of said, the proper form he uses says. You, you know people that talk like that? Um, they they kind of have their own unique dialect. It's more of a spoken writing instead of a uh, written format. Am I making any sense with that one? Kind of. It, it, it's like um, it, it's like the way that I'm going to get in trouble here. Rural North Dakotans talk. That's the way that Matthew, Mark, and John are written. Luke doesn't write that way. Luke is very, very formal and structured and well written. Uh, and so we have this classical style as opposed to the koine or common style. Luke is also uh, writing for a Gentile audience as opposed to a primarily Jewish audience. We see that in some of the things that he says when he explains Jewish thought or when he explains uh, Jewish scriptures. He's writing for Gentiles who don't understand them. And it makes sense that he's doing so because who's his buddy that he's working with? Paul. And who's Paul the Apostle to? He's an Apostle to the Gentiles. He goes to the Greeks and the Romans, um, to Athens, Thessalonica, uh, Colossae, um, these places are Greek places that Paul is visiting, and Luke is writing then to Gentiles as well. And it makes sense again because this is kind of one of those things people don't think a lot about. The name Luke itself is not a Jewish name. It is a Greek name. Okay? So he's writing to Gentiles, to Greeks, um, to Romans. That's who he's writing to. So, Acts and Luke are written by St. Luke with great influence by St. Paul, and they're written in a very classical Greek style, written for Greek thinkers and Greek peoples. And that's kind of the who that we want to talk about with the book of Acts. We'll take a pause there. Any questions so far? So this is all written in Greek? Yes. All the New Testament books are originally written in Greek. Originally written in Greek. Which is good. Because <laughs> Greek is a very specific and scientific almost sort of language. It, it, there's not as much room for questions like there is in not as good languages like Hebrew. Is that fair to say, Vicar? Okay. Real fair. Real fair. 
Um, Greek, this word must go with this word, must go with that word, and there's no mm -hmm. questions about it. And they all have very specific meanings. There's a lot more Greek written, too. There's plenty of Greek to compare There is. There's many, many, many extra-biblical Greek writings. Uh, and Greek is used as a language uh, from 600, 700 BC all the way up until even today. So it has a long history with people who know how to use it. There is evolution in that where the uh, language changes a little bit over time, as all languages do, but it's still Greek and unquestionably Greek. All right, other questions? Okay, we're going to then find out where um, the book of Acts is written. And to do that, we're going to look at the end of the book of Acts. Acts 28. We're going to read verse 16, and then also verses 30 through 31. Acts 28, verse 16, and 30 through 31. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. All right. And you'll notice there, um, we saw, I, I had mentioned this, how's the, or who's the subject of the sentence? Paul, or Luke and Paul. Yeah, and he says, we. Remember I told you that we know when Luke started hanging out with Paul, because he started writing about what we did instead of what Paul did. And we see that there in that particular case. So, they get to the city of Rome. All right, and then um, verse 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. All right. This is the end of the book of Acts. And what it ends with is that Paul and Luke are in the city of Rome and at least there for two whole years. Paul had gone there because he had been arrested at the temple in Jerusalem. He'd been arrested and accused of being a Gentile, even though he was not. And the way that um, trials worked back then was like this. Um, if I got arrested for trespassing at Vicar's house, Vicar has to actually come to court and make the accusation for the trial to take place. So the Jews decided to be tricky. They arrested Paul, had him arrested, but they never showed up at court which meant Paul was in jail and had no trial because there was no formal accusation of what the crime was. And after waiting for that in Jerusalem and not happening, Paul appeals to his Roman citizenship, which allowed his case to be heard by Caesar, by the emperor. He says, I appeal to have this case heard by the emperor. And so the governor sends him off to Rome. And the Jews are tricky then as well, because now they're supposed to go to Rome and make the accusation. But they still don't go. And so the last we know, according to scripture of St. Paul's life, is that he is under house arrest in Rome, waiting for Jews to come and make the accusation in the trial uh, before Caesar. Church history, though, helps a little bit where the scripture uh, doesn't give us all the details. Church history uh, gives us an idea 
of when Paul dies. Um, the, the tradition is, is that St. Paul is beheaded in the reign of Nero outside the walls of Jerusalem. So we know that his death takes place somewhere around 67 AD. If Paul had already been beheaded, what would Luke have said at the end of the book of Acts? He would have told us that. Which tells us when is the book of Acts written? Before Paul is killed. We also know the reign of Nero begins at 58 AD. So we know for sure that the book of Acts and Luke are written after 58, but before 67. And we're actually even more, I, we have a better idea even because of some of the events that it's probably in the 60s that Acts and Luke are written, which is pretty amazing when you think about it, right? Um, how many years after Jesus is it that the gospel of Luke is written? Yeah, let's, we'll just, let's just say 30 for a, a nice round number. About 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Luke writes his gospel and the book of Acts. And he tells us in his introduction that we read that other people had already written gospels. And we can assume Matthew and Mark, which tells us when are they writing? Before 30 years after Jesus. Now, um, can anybody here remember 30 years ago? <laughs> I would have been seven. I remember all sorts of things from 30 years ago. We had lived here in Lincoln for a couple of years. I got this scar on my hand when I was six. I was holding antelope antlers, my dad was peeling the skin off, and the knife slipped, and I sprayed blood all over the side of the house, and I asked him, am I going to die, Dad? <laughs> I remember my friends, I remember um, my Boy Scout troop, um, do you remember Brandon Magoni? He used to the return kickoffs for the Nebraska Cornhuskers a long time ago. He, his mom was my Boy Scout leader, and we were in the same Tiger Cub group. Um, things like that, I remember, and I could write a book about it. And Luke is writing about these events from 30 years before, which tells us, is it accurate? Yeah, yeah, okay. We, we could ask Ken, Ken, do you remember 30 years ago? <laughs> You're not helping my point here, Ken. Okay, so that gives us a where. He's in Rome, uh, and we'll get more to that here in a little bit about the timing. He's in Rome, Paul is, and Luke. All right, let's look at Luke 1 again. We're going to find out why St. Luke wrote the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke. Let's read Luke 1, 1 through 4, one more time. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. All right. Why is Luke writing these two books? To document things for the future. To document things for the future. To record the witnesses, the eyewitnesses' testimony. To record what the ministers, the pastors of the word, have been preaching and teaching. 
And he's also researched things so that he can give an accurate, orderly account. Well-researched, orderly account. Okay? He records the testimony of eyewitnesses, which makes sense. So now I can ask Ken. Ken, you remember anything from 30 years ago? I remember what? 30 years ago? Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, what was 30 years ago? 1991? Is that right? Just name a song and we'll know all the words. There, there you go, right. <laughs> At the same time, um, who was president in 1991? George Bush Sr., right? And could we go ask George Bush Sr. about his presidency anymore? Why not? Right. Um, how about even like um, the generals uh, 30 years ago about would be uh, Desert Storm, right? Could we ask a lot of the generals about that? They've written books, okay. They've written books. Why? Because 30 years later, they might not be around any longer. Luke is writing to record eyewitness testimony before the eyewitnesses pass on, right? Okay? Uh, so it's a well-researched account that records the testimony of eyewitnesses and pastors, ministers, as these things were delivered to Luke and to Paul. He's writing down what the Christian faith confesses at that time. For the purpose, this is uh, Roman numeral 3 under letter C, for the purpose that the reader might be sure and certain about what? About Jesus. About Jesus. What things about Jesus? His death and resurrection. His birth. His ministry. And then, we're, gonna, we're not there yet, but the book of Acts. What Jesus kept on doing even after he ascended into heaven. That they might be sure and certain about the things that have been accomplished. Um, that's what he says in verse 1. Have been accomplished among us. And the way that he writes that is in the perfect tense. Which means it is a past action. It has been accomplished but it still carries on even today. So another example of the perfect tense, and this is one you're going to be really, really glad for, okay? <laughs> Victor got dressed this morning, and he is still dressed. Praise God, <laughs> right? That's the perfect tense. He got dressed this morning and is still dressed now. Luke says things were accomplished and still are accomplished for us now. And in the second book, in Acts, he's going to say this is what Jesus kept on accomplishing for us in the church. Point four, and this one's really important for us uh, as Lutherans. Luke is also, in the things that he writes down, teaching us what church was like in the very early church. Not only in the book of Acts, where we hear about worship services, but also in the Gospel of Luke, where he writes down some of the hymns that the church sang that also had their roots in the singing of the angels at the birth of Christ, or at the singing of, um, um, oh, I just lost his name, not Zechariah, um, the singing of Simeon. Simeon, thank you. I was looking at the word Zechariah on chapter one here, and I knew I was wrong. Simeon, when Jesus is brought to the temple, he writes down these songs, and the church at that time is singing them, which makes sense. 
And in fact, the church still sings them. Right? So we sing at every divine service um, the Gloria in excelsis, right? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's well pleased. We sing in every divine service, Lord, thou lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to your word. We don't sing them at every service, but we do sing the Magnificat, right? My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Or the Benedictus. Um, I can't, get, can't switch tunes that fast in my head, but. <laughs> Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Right? We still sing these songs that Luke wrote down, that the church was singing at the time of Luke, because these people had told them that's what they sang when these events took place. And so in that sense, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are recording for us what worship or liturgy of the early church looked like. And it looked a lot like what we do even now. Which I would say to you, and you know, I'm a... Uh, pastor, I guess, so you can take it however you want to. That's why we still want to follow a liturgy even today and sing these songs even today because the church always has been. And who are we to inv invent new things? What do you think about that? <laughs> hey, there. <laughs> All right, Leonard gets a gold star today. <laughs> Luke is liturgical. Luke teaches us about church. And so uh, you'll see there uh, Roman numeral four under the letter C, uh, point number two, where I say skim Luke. Those are places where liturgical hymns are written down in the Gospel of Luke. Even things like um, when Jesus enters into Jerusalem, what do the people sing? This is in Luke 24. Or not Luke 24. It's before that. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, what do the people sing? Hosanna. Hosanna. No, that was Jesus Christ Superstar. But yeah, Hosanna. Do we sing Hosanna today? Yes. And we get it from Luke, who tells us what the early church was doing in his writings. Okay, pause there again. Questions? All right. When? We've kind of hit on this just a little bit. Let's, uh, let's talk about it again, because we can get real specific when... Uh, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are written. And so let's go to Acts 26. Um, we already read these, 16 and 30 to 31. And like I told you before, here's where we have it written down on our page. Luke writes during the life of St. Paul. He doesn't mention Paul's beheading. Church history tells us that St. Paul is martyred during the reign of Nero Caesar. There are several places in the church fathers that mention that. And archaeologically speaking, we have a church, an ancient church, built on the site where tradition holds St. Paul was martyred and buried. It's called the Church of St. Paul's Outside the Walls. Have you heard of that? Uh, it's, a, it's a church. It's in the city of Rome now, but back in the day it was outside the walls. Hence the name St. Paul's Outside the Walls. Okay? And... You said before that he was martyred outside of the walls of Jerusalem. The, I'm, I must have misspoke. He's martyred outside the, the city of Rome outside the city of Rome, during the reign of Nero Caesar. And um, 
How do I say it? The Romans, once they killed someone, weren't really worried about the bodies. <laughs> okay? So take crucifixion for an example. What normally happened to the bodies of a person who was crucified? They, they hung up there, not forever, but until they came down all on their own. Okay? Uh, as a symbol, don't mess with us or you'll be up there. Okay? That's why it's so weird. They took down the bodies at uh, Good Friday, but they did it because the Jews requested it because of Passover. So normally bodies hung up on the cross till they fell down all on their own. If they beheaded somebody like they did with Paul, they would leave their body laying out there in the street again as a reminder, don't mess with us. If you were a political enemy, uh, they had what they uh, called the, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, Tarpeon Stairs that was in the Forum, which is like the town square. And if you were a political enemy that they killed, they would kill you at the top of the stairs and just kind of toss your body down, and it would roll down the stairs and lay on the stairs until it left on its own accord through birds or rotting or washing away in the rain, okay? Or animals, dogs from the city coming to you. That's what the Romans did. So they beheaded St. Paul and left his body laying there. And church history tells us that early Christians living in Rome went and took the body and buried it nearby where he was killed. Early Christians, what would they have done then, knowing where they put Paul's body? They, they would have marked it, and they would have met there for church. Why? To worship Paul? No. They would have met there because what did they believe when they went to the Lord's Supper? What do we say? What do we believe? It's the body and blood of Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, and we eat it with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. And the people that we love in the faith that are Christians, what do we know is going to happen to their body on the last day? It's going to resurrect. So the early Christians would have met where Paul's body was buried, and that little shrine and place where they met outside the walls during the reign of Constantine the Great becomes a church. St. Paul's outside the walls. It's not the exact same church that's there today. It's been rebuilt. But the location we're pretty sure of. Church history tells us Paul's martyr during the reign of Nero. Reigned from 54 to 68. 54, uh, Claudius died. And uh, Nero's mom maneuvered so that Nero would be the emperor. And um, uh, I think his name was Britannicus, um, who was the other person who could have been emperor. Nero just casually killed him with poison. Um, Nero was a very famous emperor because he was emperor, but he wasn't really up to the task in the sense that Nero... Um, he was young when he became emperor, and instead of being emperor, he wanted to be an actor. He wanted to be a singer. He wanted to be a musician. To the point where, instead of ruling the empire, Nero would lay down on the floor and have doctors put lead sheets on his chest so that he could practice singing and strengthening his singing muscles. Right? Um, Nero was a philanderer. He was married at least four times, and um, for Romans, that was a no-no, <laughs> right? Um, especially because the last time Nero 
didn't marry a girl. Nero married a eunuch. Do I need to explain that, or are we? Um, what would be the right word today? What do they call that? Uh, a drag queen? Yes, a drag queen um, with removal of some things. Okay? What's that? A drag queen after surgery. That was Nero's last wife. And the Romans did not like that. So they, they eventually um, declare Nero an outlaw. Nero tries to kill himself, but is too chicken to do that. And so his servant runs him through with his own hand. Nero reigned 54 to 68. Um, Paul is killed during Nero's life in the martyrdom that followed the great fire of Rome. Uh, and the way that Rome worked back then was most people in Rome, and there was a million or more people living there at the time, lived in apartments called insulae. And these apartments were six-story tall buildings. And every family would get a room about as big as the church library, and that was your room. And these insulae, six stories high, about the same footprint as the church building, six stories high, full of people. And um, wooden beams for the floors, things like that. Um, this huge, huge, packed full of people area. It's kind of like a modern ghetto. In 64 AD, during a heat wave, one of the buildings of Rome sets on fire. Now, if, if the church here today sets on fire, what do we do? Call the fire department. And they come with hoses, hook the hoses up to the Lincoln water supply, and they spray water to put the fire out. Could you do that in the ancient world? No. So, the fire of 64 AD burned for days. And when it finally went out, about one-third of the city of Rome had burdened down. What did the people of the city of Rome think about that? Would you be happy if one-third of Lincoln burned down? Right. The people of Rome were not happy either. And they blamed who? Nero. So much so that they came up with this story that Nero got out his harp and was playing the harp uh, while he watched the city burn down. Or maybe you've heard it, Nero fiddled, right? They didn't have fiddles, it was a harp, okay? It's a rumor, it's not true. On top of that, Nero took the one-third of the city of ancient Rome that burned down and decided to build for himself a mansion on that place called the Golden House, the Domus Aurea, okay? And uh, you can still go visit it. It's underneath the Colosseum. They've just excavated it here in the last 10 years. Uh, the parts that remain, you can still go visit. He built a huge statue of himself right outside the door of his house, okay? Um, like 50 feet tall, golden statue of himself. Uh, he called it the Colossus, which is why, what do you go to visit even today in Rome? The Colosseum. Colosseum didn't mean a big area or an open place. It meant it's right next to that big statue of the jerk Nero. Okay? Because uh, technically it's called the Flavian Amphitheater. That's what the Romans would have called it. But it was next to the Colossus um, of, of Nero. So, the city burns down. Nero takes over the space to build a mansion. Oh, and the mansion, by the way, had a dining room uh, about the size of this front part of this room that was on a, a pivot, and it slowly turned around so he didn't have to look out the same window all the time. <laughs> Things like that, okay? 
opulent, fancy. It ticked the Romans off. Uh, Nero needed a scapegoat. So what does he do? He says the Christians burned down the city. So what happens then? This mob is all angry. The city burned down. Nero says the Christians did it. And Nero arrests as many Christians as he can, and he kills them, including St. Paul, including St. Peter, and a whole host of other ones. Some ancient historians say he crucified some and even used them as uh, street lamps at night by setting them on fire. Um, Peter was uh, crucified upside down during this persecution by Nero. Uh, underneath the Vatican, there was an amphitheater, um, a circus there, and that's where Peter was killed. So, it is likely that Luke and Acts is written then before this, before 64 AD, probably between 62 and 64 AD. All right, that was a lot of Pastor Moline random history things. <laughs> so who would have been killed at the same time? Um, I don't think Luke was. I'd have to look that up. Nobody's asked me that before, Leonard. Yeah. If, if Luke was in town, likely he would have been killed. So it's, it's possible that he wasn't. I would have to look that up. I don't know. But Paul for sure was. Other questions? So there we have probably 63, which means it's exactly 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Luke is writing, this is letter E, to whom? We saw it in both Acts and in Luke, to a guy named Theophilus. Theophilus is Greek. You'll see it underneath there, Theophile. Theos means God, and Philae, uh, Philos, is love. And so there's lots of possible answers to who Theophilus is. It could be a guy whose name is Theophilus. It could be a code name because persecution is arising and Luke doesn't want this person's name to be used. It could be um, code to mean someone who is loved by God. Theos Philae, God loved. It could be a Roman official, which is kind of the one that I like because of the use of the word, oh, most excellent Theophilus. Do you call just anybody, oh, most excellent? Usually, yeah, usually government officials, you would call that. Oh, most excellent mayor, uh, Bayer. Oh, most excellent Governor uh, Ricketts, right? You usually use that phrase with those sorts of people. So it's possible that it's a Roman official and he's hiding their identity by calling them beloved by God. It could be, and this is uh, Paul Meyer puts forward this idea in one of his books, uh, a guy named Titus Flavius Sabinus. And you'll notice they, they have the same letters, T-F-S, Theophilus, okay? It could be this guy who was the brother to future Emperor Vespasian and was mayor of Rome at the time that it was being written. Uh, possibly he became a Christian. It could be any one of those things. Do we know for sure? No. But it, it could be any of those. It could just be... Luke using it rhetorically, um, we don't know. All right, I think we can get through the last bit. What's the purpose of the book 
the Acts of the Apostles. The book, the Acts of the Apostles, is called the Acts of the Apostles, but it would better be named the Acts of Jesus in the church. At the end of the Gospel of Luke and at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ascends into heaven. We celebrate that every year, right, with the ascension. Does that mean that Jesus quit working in the church? Is Jesus present in church when we have it? Yes. And Luke knows that, and he's writing it in such a way as to teach us that Jesus is still active in the church, even now, even today. That's why at the beginning of the book, Acts, he says, in the first book I told you about what Jesus began to do, and now I'm going to tell you what he kept on doing. And that's important for us as Lutherans, because who's the one bringing the church right here at Good Shepherd into existence? Is it Pastor Poppy? He's been here for... 25 years, he's got a big personality. Is he the reason that there's a church here at Good Shepherd? Who is? Right, Jesus. Okay? Um, because of that, then, the book of Acts mirrors the Gospel of Luke. Jesus does a miracle in, the Luke, in Luke's Gospel, and in about the same place in the book of Acts, the same kind of miracle happens, and Jesus is doing that one too. But he's doing it through apostles. He's doing it through pastors and preachers. He's doing it through his word and sacraments. So we have mirroring that takes place. So if somebody raised from the dead in Luke, somebody raises from the dead in Acts. Jesus is doing them both just in different ways. The book of Acts is also a collection of sermons. There's at least 19 sermons, in part or in whole, contained in the book of Acts. And that's one of the fun things we'll do in this study. We will do sermon notes. <laughs> right? How long has it been since you did sermon notes? <laughs> Last year. <laughs> Next week, right? Um, we'll do some sermon notes to look at the sermons that are here in the book of Acts. Because the early church believed that God worked through preaching, just like we believe. Um, the book of Luke and the book of Acts could be a defense document, recording all the things that have led them to where they are uh, and submitted to the court for the trial before Caesar. Um, and so we're going to watch four, as we get into the book a little bit more, now that we have a foundation to build on, we're going to look for preaching. We're going to look for baptizing. We're going to look for the Lord's Supper. We're going to look for fulfillment of the Great Commission. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations by means of baptizing them and teaching them all that I have commanded you with his word. Uh, we're going to look at those sorts of things throughout the entire book of Acts. And if we lose sight of those things, then we run the risk of the book of Acts not really revealing to us what's going on. So keep those things, the word and the sacraments, in your mind. Because if we don't have those, then we get caught up in the miracles. And there are miracles in the book of Acts. But I want to point out to you, as we get into that next week, not a single one of the miracles make anyone Christian. In fact, when there's a miracle, people pay attention and they say, what in the world is going on? At which point, someone preaches a sermon and then the people become Christian. Which makes sense because what does St. Paul say in Romans chapter 10? Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And that's going to be our focus then for the book of Acts as we get into that next week. Whew. Questions?
Next week shouldn't be so much history, I hope. Good. Well, and please always feel free to say that's too much history, Pastor Moni. Um, all right. Let's close the Lord's Prayer, and then next week we'll pick up there and we'll actually look at um, Acts chapter 1. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, have a great week.